Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. I'm Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about pelvic organ prolapses and survivability. And joining us is Dr. Jason Ross from Iowa State University. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Matthew. It's good to be here with you and join you. Look forward to talking with you today about this topic. I think there's a lot going on in the industry that everybody should be aware of and understand how that might impact them. So I'm excited to talk about this with you today. If you wouldn't mind, start by introducing yourself and your background. That would be great. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in Iowa. I'm an Iowa native and I, uh, in 1996, came to Iowa State University and and uh, in the year 2000, graduated with my bachelor's degree in animal science. And it was actually during my undergraduate education when I was here, I started working with some pork producers over in the state center area and, you know, really worked with them in all phases of production and just started getting more and more integrated into uh, the swine industry. And also at the same time, I was taking courses related to reproductive physiology. And that's really sparked an interest with me. And and that's kind of about the time in 1999 that I decided I wanted to go to graduate school um, to study reproductive physiology and ended up going to Oklahoma State and worked with a guy named uh, Rod Geyser and earned my master's degree and PhD uh, with him in 2006. And then I spent two years working with uh, Randy Prather as a postdoc at the University of Missouri. And then in 2008, uh, a, a assistant professor position became available at Iowa State University. So it was a great opportunity for me to get back here and and do work in swine reproductive physiology, which is where my kind of my passions and my interests were. And so over the career since 2008, I've been here for 13 years now and um, have, have started out with a research and teaching position. And since then, I've transitioned into my current role, which is a research and administration uh, position and the administration component is uh, serving the, the university as the director of the Iowa Pork Industry Center. You've been in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah, it was good to travel. We were young at the time, so um, it was a lot easier to move and change locations a few years ago than it, than it would be now. So <laughs> for sure. Uh, glad we did it, though. So what's been going on in the industry around survivability, pig livability, and, and who's really all been involved? So I think it's a, you know, that's a really big topic and it's a, um, you know, it's an idea that people have been thinking about for, for quite a few years, not just, not just myself. I think it's a, it's an area of interest that, you know, really has been on the minds of a lot of producers in the last uh, decade or so, and particularly those that were serving on the animal science committee of the national pork board a few years ago. And so one of the things um, with respect to, the livability is just trying to improve overall for the number of piglets that are born that ultimately 
uh, are harvested, right? And so maximizing the efficiency of the industry uh, while also um, maximizing animal health and well-being during the, the uh, production process, right? Throughout segments of the supply chain. And, you know, so so one of the areas that's kind of changed in the last, um, you know, five to 10 years is the increased prevalence of pelvic organ prolapse. And so, you know, really, it's probably been five or six years ago that um, a few different producers and, and, and folks were looking through their records and noticing that over time, pelvic organ prolapse had be, had begun to become an increasing percentage of the overall sow mortality. And that was um, kind of a different shift or trend than what, than what they had been seeing. And so I can remember several meetings at the World Pork Expo between um, different groups just trying to get together and put their heads together about how to, how to start understanding. You know, there was this observation that pelvic organ prolapses were increasing, um, but really nobody had a, uh, an idea or a significant uh, understanding of why it's happening. And, you know, so that's really, you know, the National Pork Board under Chris Hostetler's, uh, you know, direction and leadership in the Animal Science Committee and, the, you know, really helped fund some initial work. And so um, we submitted a, a research a proposal through the Iowa Pork Industry Center that had about 10 different uh, folks involved with trying to just conduct a survey of the industry to understand more about sow mortality and, you know, what are the trends and, and how are those trends, um, you know, how are they different for different production areas, different groups. And so during the year of 2018, um, you know, we, we led a project that was really focused on asking a lot of questions and then tracking the weekly mortality rates for sow farms across the country. So we, we included a little over a hundred sow farms in that, in that survey. And at the end of that project, and that project was really focused on helping us prioritize areas of research. You know, we recognize that when you don't know what the root cause of the problem is, that the first thing we have to do is start benchmarking it, right? And show how it's changed. So we can have a better understanding of, of uh, some of the dynamics associated with it in, the, uh, in different pieces of the industry and in different areas of the country. Um, and then we also then wanted to ask questions about production practices and facilities, et cetera, that would help give us maybe some insight into areas that we could design research studies, right? Hypothesis um, driven research. So I would consider the survey kind of a hypothesis generating project and then the work that we're doing now, more hypothesis driven. And so one of the outcomes of that was that we were able to take some of these different ideas that, that folks would often um, hypothesize or, or uh, um, you know, uh, pontificate about that, that was contributing to pelvic organ prolapse, but we really didn't know, right? So we were able to ask some of those questions and rule some things out and then also make some observations on things that we should be maybe looking at. And so fast forward a couple of years and there was a, a large project funded by the National Pork Board and the Foundation for Food and uh, Agriculture Research. And that was a $2 million project focused on improving pig livability. And and so that project, the Animal Science Committee and the request for proposals around that was really focused on maximizing pig uh, survival at, at all phases of production. 
And so we've got a large team that I can get into the details on that as much as you'd like to on kind of how we're tackling that. But a, a significant part of that project also is focused on better understanding sow mortality and pelvic organ prolapse uh, specifically within that, that area. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of listing the, uh, the items of concern outside of the pelvic organ prolapse and then like who might be involved, and then we'll just dive right into to learn more about what you've been looking into. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we've got a, you know, we've got a pretty, pretty good team you know, that, um, of investigators across uh, three different universities. So it's um, Purdue, Kansas State, and Iowa State University. And, you know, and then we also have, uh, you know, just tremendous support from the industry. So there's a lot of collaboration with industry partners throughout the, um, throughout the country, right, that are partnering us with us and either um, allied industry partners that are helping fund additional work or um, production partners that are allowing us to help do field research in their facilities. You know, it's one of those things that it's a, uh, this is a non-competitive area, right? Everybody in the swine industry wants to continue to, to improve on animal health and well-being and maximize the efficiency uh, of, of production, right? And minimize our carbon footprint while we're doing that. And so, so those are non-compete areas. So it's a great way that, um, that everyone's kind of come to the table to work towards a common goal. And so within that, you know, we, we broke our project down into, um, you know, kind of three core areas, one of which is focused on um, understanding the economics and behaviors around um, mortality and survivability in the swine industry. The second objective was really focused around, um, you know, research and, and better understanding drivers of mortality at the sow farm. So that would be both in with sow mortality as well as pre-wean uh, piglet mortality and how we can do a better job improving in that area. And then the third uh, objective was focused around wean to finish mortality. And so, so we've got our teams, you know, from, you know, for example, on the sow side, we've got uh, Dr. Laura Greiner and Dr. Ken Stalder at Iowa State are driving projects um, on, on the sow piece as well as my group on pelvic organ prolapse. Um, on pre-wean mortality, Dr. Kara Stewart and Jason uh, from Purdue and Dr. Jason Woodworth from Kansas State are, are doing projects uh, focused around um, maximizing piglet health to reduce pre-wean mortality. And, um, and then on the wean to finish side, we have uh, folks like uh, Daniel Linares and from Iowa State and Mike Tokash from Kansas State and Chris Rademacher from Iowa State are, are leading different projects in that area. Um, Dr. Nick Gabler and Anna Johnson are focusing, uh, doing some work related to the, the transition piglet from, from weaning to getting started in the, in the finisher. You know, and there's several others on the team as well. Lee Schultz is doing a lot of the economics work. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of components to it um, that we're trying to tackle. And, you know, we just really prioritize those projects based on what are the things that we can do and what is the information and knowledge that we need that if we had it, we could apply it and uh, help them help the industry uh, give them tools to, to be more successful. So the practicality of it. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And so, and that's the really the fourth component of this project is, you know, a really aggressive extension and outreach uh, piece. Right. And so, um, so several again involved with that Joel DeRushi, 
at K-State and John Patience at Iowa State and several uh, several others from Iowa State, along with, along with CARE at Purdue, are, um, you know, we have a, a website dedicated to this project at uh, piglivability.org. And, you know, we've, you know, doing different things related to getting information to producers and stakeholders that they can utilize the information coming out of this project. Um, and then we're also this October having a conference on uh, survivability that will be in, be in Omaha in October. So, so there's a, it's a pretty uh, integrated project, right, from the standpoint of, you know, research and, and extension integrated together to, to make sure that the communication between a research team is, is bi-directional uh, with the industry to deliver information, but also uh, gather information to, to be informative in how we conduct our research projects. Gotcha. There's a lot going on there. When you start talking about survivability, you don't even have to say that there's a lot of lot going on. There's there's so many elements to it. And uh, excited to talk about pelvic organ prolapse. And if we wouldn't mind, just not everybody listening here might know what it is. So we just start out by what is a pelvic organ prolapse, and yeah. what are you doing to try to research that? So yeah, so pelvic organ prolapse would would really refer to. Um, the vagina, the uterus, or the um, rectum um, prolapses, right? So that's e any of those three, right? Where those tissues um, basically exit the body cavity, right? And so, um, you know, presumably there's a breakdown of the broad ligament and some of the ligaments and tissue that are responsible for holding the reproductive tract in place that during late gestation and uh, shortly after farrowing, you know, in that wind peripartum period, um, sows are having an increased susceptibility for uh, for a prolapse of one of those three types. Typically, the majority of them are are vaginal and uterine prolapse. Um, although rectal prolapses are had also increased as well. So collectively, between all of them, so um, you know all combinations thereof, they would represent based on our data in 2018 about 20 to 21 percent of all sow deaths were occurring as a result of pelvic organ prolapse. So, you know, so that's, you know, that's a, a, a pretty high number given that, you know, we're, we didn't, that that number had, had come out of uh, really nowhere in the last 10 years. That number was dramatically lower 10 years before. And so trying to figure out what are some of the contributing factors, whether it's environmental or nutritional or what it might be, right? What are those factors that can contribute to that? Um, so that we can better understand and develop mitigation strategies, right? How are we going to work our way out of this um, and, you know, in an area that we don't really understand? And so that's been a big part of our, our effort the, the last two to three years is trying to understand more about the physiology of, of why this is, is happening. Gotcha. So what have you found thus far? What mean... I guess, what yeah. have you found this far? And then probably dig into how you went about getting that. Yeah, yeah. So so in the survey data, you know, one of the ways that we uh, tackled that initially was collecting a lot of information from those 104 sow farms that were involved with and partnering with us. And, you know, so we asked a lot of questions, right? And then we also kind of evaluated the data we could collect from those questions and correlate that back to the prolapse incidence rates that we were seeing on those farms during the project period. And so we also made about 62 farm visits and you know collected feed samples, walked through 
these farms. Amanda Chipman uh, was part of our team at the time. She did just an amazing job of gathering that information and working with all of our partners in that project to to really just kind of gather um, that information, but then also make observations on these farms during farm visits. And, and so we asked all kinds of questions when we were there. And then we also took individual animal measurements on each of those 62 farms that we visited. And so, and those would range from all kinds of things, right? Whether the, the sow's tail length um, to, you know, how many times sows were sleeved on average at that farm versus, um, you know, if, if induction protocols were used to induce farrowing and how frequent that would happen on a, on a given sow farm. So we tried to look at different management strategies and relate that back to um, the pelvic or pelvic organ prolapse incidents. And one of the things um, that we also did, what we looked at was body condition score during late gestation. I think that was one of the interesting observations that we uh, initially saw is that sows that were in a lower body condition score on a, using a three-point body condition score system um, had a higher probability of prolapsing than sows that were ideal or over-conditioned. Uh, and so that was one of the observations that we made. The other observation that we made is when we were visiting sow farms and ask them what strategies they use for feeding during uh, late gestation and early lactation. Farms that were uh, aggressive and in, in using a bump feeding strategy for sows that were lower body condition score uh, as a farm tended to have lower uh, pelvic organ prolapse rates than farms that weren't using that practice. And so, you know, there were some other pieces too that we made some observations of, um, you know, antibiotic usage. So in some cases during certain seasons, utilization of antibiotics, we noticed that when farms had antibiotics and feed that that reduced pelvic organ prolapse. Huh. And um, so, so all of those things collectively um, coupled together with some specific observations in the perineal area of sows, you know, kind of led us towards looking uh, to better understand the vaginal microbiome. And, and so when I talk about the perineal scores in sows, one of the things that we did was develop a late gestation scoring system that we could evaluate the sows and determine if we think they are high risk or low risk um, for pelvic organ prolapse. So we would try to do that, you know, around within the last 10 days of gestation. And what we found is that we were fairly consistent um, that the sows that we identified as low risk around, around 1% of those would, would prolapse. Um, but in our more recent studies, the sows that we identified as high risk, about 23% of those would subsequently prolapse. So we got pretty good oh, at wow. identifying some differences in sows before they prolapsed. Yeah. And so then we implemented several research uh, studies to kind of, you know, parse out some of the biology that may be associated with that as well. And and really, we were interested in, in trying to understand the, the vaginal microbiome and, and if that differed between sows that were low risk or high risk for, for prolapse. And so um, one of my uh, graduate students, Zoe Kiefer, really uh, led a lot of those efforts in the last few years. And we worked with a couple different uh, farms, right? We did two different studies focused on the vaginal microbiome. Um, and both of those studies involved two different sow farms. And what we were able to see is that there are the population of, uh, of, of, of the microbiome, the, the, the bugs that are living in the reproductive tract, um, 
is different for sows that are high risk for pelvic organ, organ prolapse compared to those sows that are right next to them that would be low risk for, for pelvic organ prolapse. Huh. Um, you know, now that's an association. We're at the point in the, the research process where we've identified this association, but really now we got to go back and identify, determine why, right? Why do those specific microbes that maybe are uh, represent different proportions of the population in a sow that's at risk for prolapse compared to one that's lower risk? Is there a fundamental reason why that would lead to a prolapse or is this just an association, right? That, uh, that, that the sow that's at risk has a different vaginal microbiome or is she at risk because she has a different microbiome and gotcha. try to determine um, if there's a causality or if it's just a, an association. And so um, some of that works. Uh, we've got one publication that just came out a few weeks ago um, and, and another paper that's, that's uh, on its way to being published as well to kind of detail some of that work and, and the different microbes that we have an interest in, in better understanding. That's really cool. Uh, that is that is crazy that you're very able to find that, and I think it's it's even even more um, wild that you guys made on a sixty some farms, and I mean, just with the biosecurity aspect of that in itself, like it, you can hardly do more than that in a year. Like that's yeah, and that's we a did lot that of visits. Lot less than a year too. You know, I mean, one of the um, you know obviously you know we were very cognizant of the biosecurity, and um, you know we work with different groups, right? And so, you know, a lot of that, if we were working with one partner that maybe had six farms that were involved with the study, you know, we could go onto those farms maybe more frequently, um, you know, if we had worked yep. with their management and determine, well, what's the right order for these farms given the health status of the different farms? And um, so we could move through a, a, a partner's maybe farm that's contributing six or 10 farms to the study we could get through that a little quicker and then we'd take a break, you know, buy some gotcha. new shoes, whatever. And, and, um, you know, after, after adequate downtime, we'd go work with the next group. And, um, but yeah, it was certainly a lot of coordination and a, and a lot of communication to, to make that happen without, without disrupting, uh, different folks, production flows. So you organized and facilitated the touring of over 60 farms. And you looked at body conditions, at induction protocols, at sleeving intervals. How difficult was it to find consistency or accuracy and dependability around the reporting of those protocols in sow farms? I often hear that's very difficult to bring metrics to early pig cares and sow cares in the farrowing house. How, how challenging was that? Yeah, you know, um, that's a really good question because everybody everybody has their own system, right? And the way they record data and the way they um, enter that data into a database. And so one of the objectives, right, was just to, when we started that, was to try to get everybody to um, share their information with us in a manner that was really consistent. So for example, a lot of people would, will enter different reasons for a for a sow's death, right? That goes into their database. So if we were to just extract the data from a different database for, for different producers, sometimes it's difficult to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples um, in that scenario. So one of the things that we did on this project was we worked directly with all of the sow farm managers um, and we gave them a, a weekly reporting sheet and 
um, we we only gave them seven different buckets of for a cause of a sow death and and that helped us i think you know and we gave them definitions and and so that um we could put sows into the same general categories um across all of those different reporting systems so we didn't have to do a large data extraction at the end of the year and try to make sure that we are making direct comparisons on the cause of death for a sow um now there's also a lot of information as you probably know that um that as part of caring for a sow in farrowing and during lactation that the farm staff will do a really great job of and and you just see it on the sow cards that are next to the, to the sows you know there's a lot of notes that are taking and a lot of their observations that they use on a day-to-day -day basis that just help them provide better animal care and um so when they're individualizing that that sow's care so example would be if 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 somebody sleeves a sow and to check for um, dystocia or piglets that might need some assistance in farrowing, you know that gets recorded on a sow card and what time it was done so that when they come back they know what the interval's been, and so those types of things we could go in and look at that, um, and we could we could make observations for a farrowing room or two on how many times that sow had been sleeved and checked for dystocia, right? And so that was something that we had to do manually because those that data on the sow card doesn't get entered into a database eventually, right? So it's just, it's notes for, uh, you know, maximizing and improving sow care um, at the time of farrowing and during lactation, but we had to go in and manually record that, um, you know, at all. So so something like that data around early pig cares, if there was a way to, to have that in a consistent and trustworthy way, you think that would help us dive a little bit deeper into pig livability and survivability in, in a way that could be just a little bit more efficient? Yeah. You know, I do, I do think there's a way, you know, there's a, you know, one of the things that's kind of a, a double-edged sword, right. You know, because there's so much data, right. So I, as an industry, I think we collect a tremendous amount of data um, but we don't have a, enough of a robust analysis, right? So you could say we're uh, in some ways we're data rich and analysis poor, and you know, that there's probably some things that we could maybe help get some answers, uh, for, and in, and in other ways, there's, we don't have the data to get some of the answers we would like. And so to your point, I do think, um, if there were ways to streamline, um, entering information and data around uh, individual care, that that data can be accumulated over time that then can be used in, in different types of analyses to determine what the effects of specific treatment strategies or even just management strategies are for, um, for the subsequent health of both the piglet and the, and the sow. Gotcha. So what comes next for the swine industry with all of this research, all the things you've been able to gather, what's next and, and what does that mean to, to the broader industry? Yeah, good question. Also, you know, I think, you know, it's one of those things that as a, as a, as a problem, especially around pelvic organ prolapse, I think that it's, it's taken a long time to get to where we are right now. Right. I mean, what, whatever the, the change was or the cause that caused this increase to occur over the last decade, um, you know, I don't think the solution is going to, going to find itself, you know, in six months either, because it took such a long time to get to the point of, 
of recognizing it and benchmarking it, that it's going to take a little bit of time to work our way backwards to understand it. And then once we understand it, how do you develop an effective mitigation strategy to prevent it? And I still think there's quite a bit of work in in that area. The other thing I would also say, um, you know, and I'm paraphrasing an Albert Einstein quote here is that, you know, to get yourself out of a problem, you have to think differently than the way you were thinking when you got into it. And um, so I think that's one of the things that we just need to continue looking at the question differently and, um, you know, approach things from a different angle that hopefully we can shine a light on it or see it in a way that maybe we haven't looked at it before. And, um, you know, so in that regard, you know, we, we love feedback. There's people that will fire us an email and say, have you thought about this? Or, or, you know, what are your thoughts on this? And there's just great discussion around that. And I think that's, that's really important um, is, you know, because it gets a lot of different perspectives on, on things, right. And thinking about something, in a way that we haven't thought about it before, I think is probably going to be a quicker way to a solution than trying to think the same way as we were thinking the last 10 years when the problem, uh, uh, you know, started to become. Gotcha. And so you, you already mentioned that you have the conference this October where all of you are going to talk about all the projects and the research and the solutions that have come out of all of this. And you you gave a pretty good nugget there, but is there, is there a golden nugget you'd like to share outside of what you already have? I mean, that was, that was pretty good. Yeah. You know, I guess that's, that is kind of a, a golden nugget, right? I mean, and that's yeah. probably true for almost every problem in life is, <laughs> you know, you, you have to get out of it. You have to think about it differently than you were thinking when you got into it. And, um, you know, I think that's probably a, a you know, when you wake up and find figure something, you realize that something's happening um, you know, you got to start looking out, thinking outside the box to, to find those innovative solutions. And, you know, I think, um, you know, that, that would be, that would be probably where I would, what I would say for a golden nugget related to this topic is, um, you know, it's going complex solution are going to require very innovative thoughts, um, and, and perspectives from maybe people that weren't, uh, really integrated into the, um, understanding how when we weren't really integrated in the process, right? When we kind of, when the problem developed. So um, I think it's one of those topics and concepts where we can get the more outside innovative thoughts, contributing ideas to the solutions, the quicker we'll get there. Gotcha. Well, we really appreciate you being a guest on the popular pig podcast. It, it's been fascinating to learn about everything that you guys have done in just the past couple of years. There's been a lot of progress made in a short amount of time considering how big of a deal survivability and, and pelvic prolapse really is. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with all of us. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on, Matthew. It was great to discuss it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, Please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.